Amen. Well, remain standing, and let's take our Bibles out this morning and turn to the book of Mark, to chapter 7 of the book of Mark, and we'll read the first 13 verses, which we'll be looking at this morning. Mark, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear God's word. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's pray. Lord, your word is precious to us. Uh, We pray, Father, that we would love that word. We pray that as we look into it this morning that you would bless our time. We pray that you would help us to to learn what you have for us in this passage. We pray, God, that we would seek to obey you in what we learn in it and to glorify you for what it reveals about you and about your Son. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So, we're back in Mark this morning after our time of sermons focused on the topics surrounding the incarnation of our Lord. We are now returning to our journey through the gospel according to John Mark. Let me take just a moment to briefly reorient us to where we are in our study. Remember, Jesus is ministering in the towns and villages around the Sea of Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel. Out of his sort of adopted home base of Capernaum, there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Remember that Mark's record of Jesus portrays him as a a man of action, moving quickly from one situation to another. And when Jesus comes on the scene at the beginning of Mark's record, uh, it's interesting that Mark does not mention the birth of Christ, but when Jesus comes on the scene, he is engaged already and remains engaged in two, doing two things. First, preaching, 
Remember, he comes to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he's going about doing good, doing signs and wonders and miracles, demonstrating the validity of the message that he's preaching and demonstrating his authority over all things by by healing the sick, by casting out unclean spirits, by walking on the surface of a stormy sea, by calming that sea with a word, and by even forgiving sin and raising the dead, showing his authority over all aspects of of this world. And Jesus has, to this point, largely enjoyed great popularity among the people, even if most are coming to him not to be freed from guilt and freed from judgment of their sin, but coming to be freed from sickness and be fed by his miracles. He's been, become so popular that his disciples and he are not able really to even take time to rest. Whenever they, they do so, the people find out about it and they come and they start bringing their sick to and they're, they're the possessed to Jesus to heal them, to deliver them. But Jesus, in that, is always there. He's always willing to minister to them, ignoring his own tiredness. An example in chapter 6 there in verse 34 where we sort of were uh, recently, it says that he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. But not everyone was enamored with Jesus, this teacher, this preacher, this healer from Galilee who claimed to be God. There were people who rejected him, rejected his teaching. The the people who knew him best, the people in his hometown, remember, uh, in Nazareth, they said that they knew him too well and, and they knew his family and therefore they asked, how can he claim to have come down from heaven? And they wouldn't believe him. And then there were the religious leaders of the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees. Because of Jesus' tendency to not fall in line with their version of religious service and his tendency to associate with and even eat with those that the Pharisees counted as unworthy, or unclean, and because of Jesus' willingness to call them out because of their hypocrisy in regard to those very things, in fact, we'll see that this morning, uh, the folks from denominational headquarters in Jerusalem grew to despise Jesus. And we've even seen at one point back in chapter 3 that the Pharisees, Mark writes, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So there's been acceptance of Jesus and there has been controversy in Jesus' ministry. And this morning in Mark's record, we return to the subject of controversy. And we see in verse 1, it is with the aforementioned scribes and Pharisees. The first thing that we're going to look at this morning, the first half really of this chapter, is what we could very simply call the Pharisees' complaint. Because they have a complaint. They always have a complaint with Jesus. And these scribes and Pharisees, verse 1 tells us, that they had come from Jerusalem. This is more or less a, a... 
official group who has come. Word of Jesus and of his, his work and of his teaching has gotten to Jerusalem, and, and they have been, we've seen it in, in other situations here in Mark's gospel, they have been keeping an eye on Jesus. And these Pharisees, these scribes, these experts in the law, Mark says they come from Jerusalem up to um, the 90 miles or so, up to where Jesus is in Capernaum, likely, and they are wanting to check up or to watch or to investigate what's going on. And what do you think they notice? What draws their attention? What draws their, uh, their concern, their furrowed brow, their glances? What is it that, that Mark records in this instance that is so upsetting to these men? Is there a flaw in Jesus' understanding of the nature of God? No. Is there immorality among the the disciples? Are they breaking the commandments of God? No. Is there blasphemy? Is there idolatry? Is there adultery? No. Their great sin and Jesus' transgression for allowing it among his disciples was dirty hands. Well, maybe not dirty hands uh, technically, but hands that were defiled, that were unwashed, and that remained that way, that they did not go through the ritual prescribed before they ate. They did not wash their hands, but they ate, verse 2, they ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now that seems sort of nitpicky. What's this all about? What's the point here? You know I, know, I know when I was a child and I would come to the table for dinner, that that was always the first thing my mom would, would ask me. Did you wash your hands? Or if the answer was obvious, she would say, go wash your hands. But the reasoning here of the Pharisees is, is not the same as the reasoning of my mother. This is not, this, this issue with the washing of hands is not a, a hygienic issue. If you have a, a more modern translation of the, the Bible this morning, uh, you'll see that verses 3 and 4 are enclosed in parentheses. And the reason for that is that our gospel writer here, Mark, as he writes his gospel, he's writing to a largely Gentile audience. And so there are points in his writing where he takes a moment to explain to his non-Jewish readers some of the things that he wouldn't have to explain if he was writing to Jews. In fact, that's one of the ways that we know as we look at the the books of the Bible, we know when someone is writing to a non-Jewish audience primarily is because they explain some of these things as Mark does here. So he explains what he means about this issue of eating with unwashed or defiled hands. And he explains it this way in verses 3 and 4. He says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. You see, in first century 
Judaism, the Jews had developed a whole system of customs in regard to religious life and religious observance. Things that, that while some were originally tied to biblical teaching, that they had sort of taken on a life of their own and they had uh, sort of as you, like as you start walking down a steep hill, sometimes you'll get yourself going faster and faster. That's sort of what the Jews did with these regulations. They had come up with all of these things uh, and, and they had become entrenched as ways to keep in touch with their history and their culture and with God. And they became very important to the Jewish people. In the play-turned-feature film, Fiddler on the Roof, the protagonist of that, Tevye, tells right at the start of the film that the lives of his uh, fellow Jews would be as precarious in their, their life as, well, as someone playing a violin up on the peak of a roof. He says, making ends meet in the humble village there of Anatevka is, is not so easy. He said, so how do we keep our balance? He says, that I can tell you in one word. Tradition. Because of our traditions, he says, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. And that's what was happening here. The Pharisees, the, the, and of course the Jews in general, had this down to a very rigid science. The tradition. And since these were long-established religious oral traditions, they were referred to as the traditions of the elders or the traditions of the fathers. Oral traditions that had come down uh, through time. And one such aspect, a very significant aspect of this oral tradition that came down was this idea of, of cleanliness and removing defilement. And part of that was the washing, washing of hands. And this washing of hands before eating then was not an issue of hygiene, but of, of defilement, of ceremonial uncleanness. Remember in the Old Testament that much of the, the law of God was concerned with this idea of, of ritual uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness. There were a whole host of things that the Jews were to avoid, um, not to touch, not to eat, not to come in contact with. They were to avoid certain animals, certain bodily fluids, things associated with dead bodies, and so on. And to touch those things or to eat those animals rendered one ceremonially, ritually unclean. Unclean in regard to the law. And the unclean person was almost always separated from the community a picture of how sin separates people from God and they would stay unclean until they performed some ritual. Some of that was part of the law of God. But the Jews began to add more things to it. But the idea was being defiled or being unclean. But to give you an idea here of how the Jewish religious leaders had wandered outside of the Scriptures what even the law of Moses had given, we have this idea of hand-washing as a way of dealing with uncleanness. Because the only laws in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic law, regarding washing of hands had to do with the priest, 
when he would prepare to go into the the tabernacle or the temple to serve, he had to wash his hands to remove any defilement. Otherwise, the washing of hands, uh, other than in a particular occasion, was not an issue. And it was never a command to wash before eating a meal. But the Jews, the leaders, in the tradition that they developed, the tradition of the elders, which Jesus interestingly refers to in verse 7 as the commandments of men, and in verse 8 as the tradition of men, the halakha, with these many, many additional laws, uh, there were these regulations that were added, and that was added. By the way, notice also here that that in this passage, the Jews referred to the the tradition of the elders, elsewhere the tradition of the fathers, but Jesus calls these things, as I mentioned, the tradition of men, noting where they really came from. And here in verse 3, we see that Mark notes that it is not God, it is not the Bible, but the Pharisees and all the Jews who hold to these things. In fact, the fact that Jesus and his disciples did not hold to these things these man-made additional laws, was a big part of the trouble that the Pharisees had with Jesus. Verse 3 tells us that they do not eat, the Jews do not eat until they wash their hands properly. Oh yes, it had to be done in just the right way. It wasn't enough just to wash your hands. You had to wash your hand properly. Literally, that word there means to wash their hands with a fist which is kind of hard for people to figure out exactly what that is, but it points to some procedure uh, to, to wash. There was no soap involved. Remember, this wasn't to get your hands clean and free from dirt, physical dirt. It was to remove ceremonial defilement. It was a, a ritual. And Mark adds also in verse 4 that when they, that is the Jews, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Now, that's a different word there. It speaks about when the Jew would go to the marketplace, the agora. You've heard of agoraphobia, the fear of of, of public places. That comes from this word for the marketplace, agora. Well, that for the Jews was a minefield of ceremonial defilement. You don't know who was there or where they've been or what they've touched. They could pick up something that an unclean person had touched, making them unclean. Or worse, they might bump into a Gentile. Physically. So, when they would come home, they would have to undergo a a washing. And this is a different washing. This is removing a a different, further level of potential defilement. Again, that's not in the Bible. But it was part of the tradition of the elders. And just to to show how far this had gone, Mark mentions that there are these many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, all of these things added by the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders. Remember the, in the record of Jesus going to the wedding in Cana and that there are these stone water pots there that Jesus turned the water that was in them into wine? Well, it says there that they are for the Jewish rites of purification. Well, that would be this kind of thing that those were there for. 
And so then when the Pharisees noticed that Jesus, as a teacher, as a rabbi, with his, his followers, his disciples, when they see that he is not holding his disciples to these traditions, they call him out on it. Verse 5, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And by the way, over in Luke chapter 11, there's an episode where Jesus is dining with a Pharisee who had asked him uh, to a meal, and this Pharisee was appalled to find out in that place at that time that Jesus himself did not wash his hands in this ritual way before eating. Why? Because it wasn't a part of God's law. Jesus always obeyed God's law. We talk about that every week. That the righteousness that Jesus obtained by the way that he lived was because he always, at every step, in every way, in thought, word, and deed, followed to the letter, to the jot, to the tittle, the law of God. But just as we've seen with the issues of Sabbath observance and and eating with certain people, Jesus does not really have any use for the traditions and for the laws that the Pharisees have added without warrant to God's law. And so as the Pharisees then bring this complaint, Jesus responds. And that's the second part of the the chapter here is Jesus' response. You know, Jesus is shown through the Gospels to be a humble man, a gentle man, and yet a strong individual. He, John the Baptist told us, was was gentle, that he would not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. He endured much, much at the hands of people, and he was compassionate, as we mentioned earlier this morning, in regard to their needs. But as we read the Gospels, there is one thing that Jesus could not abide, and that was hypocrisy. If you don't believe me, go home this afternoon and read Matthew 23. And he calls out hypocrisy in his response to the complaint here this morning of the Pharisees. And he calls it out by calling as a witness the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes here in verses 6 and 7 from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13. In verse 6 it says, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He calls them hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite, you may know, comes from the world of of Greek theater, and it refers to someone who plays a part, who wears a mask, as actors would do then. It refers to someone who acts in in a way that is different from what he is really like or or proclaims to be like, like. And here Jesus says that the Pharisees, with their strong and their vocal insistence on the tradition of the elders, um, are really demonstrating, or as a way rather, of demonstrating one's love and devotion for God is really, in their case, an act of hypocrisy. 
As Isaiah said in his day, Jesus charges the Pharisees with honoring God with their lips while their hearts are far from him. A charge which could be leveled at many in the church today. The lips present external devotion, visible praise. They say great things. They make great claims. But true devotion is from the heart. And there, the omniscient Christ declares in the case of the Pharisees that there is no such devotion to God in the Pharisees, even as Isaiah proclaimed it about those in his day. It's all a show. The props and the costumes and the lines of dialogue are outward adherence to these laws. And it's not even to the law of God, but to the law of man, as Jesus calls it, the commandments of men. And in Jesus' response, he really makes the emphasis of the Pharisees' religion clear and evident with a series of contrasts that he gives. It starts there with Isaiah's word and then carries on in verses 8 and 9 with Jesus' own words. Contrast here. Look, it says, the people, beginning in verse 6, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. He says in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He says you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Notice in that all of the you's and all of the yours as he speaks of their focus upon themselves and upon their laws and their traditions, their tradition of the elders. Now it's important to see here that Jesus is not condemning tradition per se. As Tevye noted in Fiddler, tradition is an important aspect of human culture and even of religious life. Traditions can be very helpful and very good and help us to be connected with the past. And since we're very much creatures of habit, traditions can help us to, to be comfortable and give us a sense of stability as we, as we do things that we know that have been done for a long time. We just came through the holiday season with Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's where there have been a plethora of traditions within families and within churches of things that we do around the holidays. Even in the church, there are many traditions, many good traditions, many helpful traditions, many, many that we don't even recognize as traditions. There are some things that we do in the church, some things that, that some traditions that we have that are just traditions. Buildings that look like this building looks, that look like a church building meeting at a specific time on Sunday, singing, don't be offended, but singing out of a songbook instead of singing from words up on a screen, that's a tradition. The Bible doesn't command, thou shalt sing out of hymnals and not off of screens. Uh, having fellowship meals once a month, that's tradition. Now, other traditions in the church are traditions that are based on or informed by biblical principles 
but are not commanded in Scripture. They're informed by Scripture. And we have to be careful in in distinguishing that from another category because the Bible teaches that our worship and what happens in our worship services are not to be guided by tradition or even by consultation among the elders or the members, but by the positive command of God in His Word. But, but around that, there are other things that we do and ways that we do things, and many of those are traditional, biblically informed tradition with good intentions and good purposes. Um, we have our seating arranged in a certain way with a, a raised platform in the, in the front, and in the center of that platform is a pulpit. It's in a prominent place. Because what happens in it, the preaching of God's word, is the most prominent thing that happens in the service. So it is traditional that we have a pulpit, but it is traditional for a reason. It's not merely tradition. It's to emphasize what is done, what is central in the service. If you go to a Roman Catholic church, you won't find a pulpit in the middle. You'll find the altar. Because in a Roman Catholic church... The Mass is what is central. For us, the preaching is central. It is large. Again, to emphasize the importance of of what goes on, the preaching. It is solid. It's not plexiglass. I know some churches do that. But it is solid because we believe that God's Word is important. And because we believe that the man standing behind the pulpit is the least important part of what is going on. I should be as inconspicuous as possible. Our style of worship is called traditional because it has a long tradition in the church. And we keep doing it that way because we believe that it best reflects the things that the Bible teaches and emphasizes. Our order of worship reflects reflection upon what the Bible teaches. There's no order of worship given in the Bible that we need to follow. But the whole body of teaching in the scriptures informs the way that we step through the service. The gospel informs that. It may surprise some of you to learn that everything that happens in our service and practically everything in in the room is not just haphazard, but intentional and with a specific purpose or a specific reason behind it that we do it. But many of the things that you see around you and the many of the things that happened are there for a biblically informed reason. Now, it's important to distinguish again that the Scripture teaches us positively what happens in the service. As you go down our order of worship and see the things that we do, we do those things because Scripture teaches us that we should do those things. And, apart from that, Scripture informs some of the other things that we do. The order of the things in our order of worship. The idea and the placement and the the importance of the pulpit. uh, The reason that we don't have a praise band. Why I don't wear jeans and a t-shirt when I lead the service. You know, all of those things from the beginning of the call to worship and the greeting from God, the 
the interspersing of songs in the service instead of having all the songs up front like some churches do. Uh, We respond to the pronouncements through the service of what God has done and what he expects of us. That's all tradition, but tradition guided by biblical principles and teaching. But the things that we do, the preaching, the singing, the prayers, the scripture reading, the other elements of our service, the fact that we have those in the service is not simply tradition. But because we believe God has given us commands in his word that those things are to be done in the service. But arranging them as we do is not commanded, but is another of those biblically informed traditions. So there's much of tradition even in every service we have. But those traditions uh, have to be constantly evaluated. They have to be constantly reevaluated because tradition can get out of hand and it can become idolatrous, really. And the case in point here is what Jesus brings out in verses 10 through 13 in regard to the Pharisees. Jesus is saying that they have confused their traditions, the tradition of the elders, with the commands of God. And that's a serious confusion. Even more, he says, the priority that you give your tradition is problematic. It is hypocritical. Verse 7 says, again, in vain do they worship me. Look at it there, teaching as doctrines, that is, as divinely commanded things, as doctrines, the commandments of men. Getting the two mixed up and even giving preference to, he says, to your tradition over the teaching of of the scriptures. Verse 8 says, you leave, he like escalates there, you leave the command of God and hold to the tradition of men. You see where they're headed. Then verse 9, and he says this in very simply cynical language, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to, there's purpose there, in order, you, you, Reject the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition, Jesus is saying to them. You're consciously replacing God's word with your tradition. And we do that today when we invent extra laws that don't come from Scripture, but we raise them to the level of Scripture. Jesus offers a powerful example here of what they're doing in verses 10 through 13. Let's read it again. He says, For Moses says, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So there's the law. That's from Deuteronomy. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the word, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Now the idea of korban here comes from a Hebrew word for, for offering, and it was itself part of the tradition of the elders. Now because it's part of the tradition of the elders doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but it means that it's extra biblical. It's passed along by tradition. But what would happen with this is in this korban, 
a person could declare goods to be dedicated to God and thereby they would be withdrawn from any other use. And at the person's death, those funds or that property, whatever it is, would pass into the possession of the temple. In the meantime, though, he, remained, he maintained control over the money or the possessions. But once the property had been declared, given to God, by the way there in that, in verse 11, right at the very end, where he says, uh, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God. There's Mark again explaining that for his Gentile readers. But he says that Whatever had been declared korban, the Jewish priests even discouraged from being used from, for any other use. In fact, they would require steep fines if anybody wanted to sort of cancel the dedication of the property. And that's what Jesus says was happening. A man could declare his money korban, and through this setup, a kind of connivance between the man and the priest... He could then come to his parents, whom God has commanded to honor. God has commanded them to take care of them. And he could go to his parents and say, Sorry, Mom and Dad. My hands are tied now. I've dedicated this to the Lord, so I can't use it for you. The money is God's. Verse 13 says, Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And that's the crux. This is the very worst abuse of tradition, using it to the point of making void the word of God. By this perversion of God's word, through man's own manipulation of tradition, they actually annulled God's word. They repealed God's law. That is, they have actually ruled the word of God to be unlawful. Forbidding men to honor their parents as God's word commands them. By the insinuating of their tradition in between that. In Jesus' words here, for the sake of their tradition and through their manipulation, the Pharisees have gone from raising man's words to the level of God's to leaving God's word and holding to man to rejecting God's command to establish their own tradition and finally to outlawing God's law by their tradition. And just to sort of twist the knife, he says, and many such things you do. Again, Jesus is not denouncing tradition, but he is unmasking the hearts of the Pharisees who have the nerve to challenge Jesus because his disciples, and by the way, it's not even all of his disciples. Verse 2 says some of his disciples were doing this. Others would wash their hands. There's nothing wrong with washing your hands, even to do it ritually. So some of them did. Even Jesus himself, again, Luke eleven thirty eight, says that they don't do that. They did not get in line with the traditions that had developed and which the Pharisees held and taught as, in reality, above the word of God. Because there is so much religious tradition, the danger from the church today is to let tradition usurp the place of Scripture. And we must always be on guard against that. 
uncritically following tradition, again, tradition is not a bad thing in and of itself, but uncritically following tradition and placing it up here is a great danger, especially if that tradition is not supported by or is actually contrary to, as here, to the teaching of God's Word. When and if tradition, no matter how ancient, no matter how well established, if it supplants Scripture, if it supplants love and humility and the principle of counting others as more important than ourselves, it must go. But that very often is a very difficult thing to do. It's tradition, after all. One of the most unity-threatening phrases ever uttered in the church is this. But that's the way we've always done it. Especially when that is used as an argument clencher, as a discussion squelcher. And maybe the best way to see if, if tradition or a tradition has become an idol in the church, in your church, in our church, is to suggest changing it. And then sit back and watch and pay attention to the ensuing discussion or debate or debacle. I suspect that more churches have split over the question of traditions than have split over the question of doctrines. Again, not all traditions are bad. Some are very good. There's even an apostolic tradition that Paul talks about. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And then to the Thessalonians, he commends them in this manner. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letters. But we must always recognize, beloved, and not be afraid to admit that some things we do merely out of tradition, and we must be willing to evaluate those traditions. Some things we do for tradition that are traditions for good biblical reasons, those we should keep. But, beloved, we should never, ever let any tradition, no matter how closely held, contradict God's own teaching in His Word. We must never let tradition hold sway over Scripture, which is what the Pharisees were doing. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith says this, that the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits... And let's add there, we can add to the confessions, we can't to Scripture, but let's add there the, tra- uh, the traditions of the church that they are to be examined in whose sentence or whose judgment we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Nothing trumps Scripture. And let us remember as we close, I don't want to hear any zipping of Bibles, remember. Let us remember, let everyone remember that when Christ returns, we will not be judged by the traditions of men. We will not be judged by tradition at all. 
whether we've kept man's law or upheld any tradition, but we will be judged based on the standards of God's law. And only one person has ever done that. The incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that through faith, His righteousness is our righteousness. So let us, each and every one, rest our souls in Him. Let us cling to Him as He has fulfilled that which we really need. And let us remember to judge our traditions by Scripture never the other way around. And to that we say, Amen. Father, we thank you so much for even the traditions that we have that that help to ground us and help to remind us of of things that, that we have done, that the church has done. But Lord, we pray that we would always check those against your word. We pray, Father, that we would not be guilty of putting the doctrines of man above your word. Lord, that we would not be guilty of placing anything above your word, but that we would humble ourselves before it, that we would submit ourselves to it, that we would be students of your word, that we might know what you teach and how the things that are traditional line up with those. We pray, Father, that we would not insist on things that there is not biblical basis to insist on that we might give freedom where that is appropriate, Lord, but that where your word commands us, that we would always be in submission to it. Uh, And through that, would you bless us, Father, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.